Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Okay, let's uh, go to the book of Ephesians and see how far we get tonight. Actually, we're supposed to be down with Ephesians now, aren't we? According to the syllabus. We're supposed to be starting Philippians, I think, but we lost a week with the weather. Um, so, we'll see how far we get in Ephesians. Try to get through the rest of four, maybe in chapter five. And then next week, we'll try to finish Ephesians and get into Philippians. Let's open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time tonight to open your word. I pray that you teach us in this time together. Thank you for this opportunity of study. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, we started talking about this chapter last week. And we got up to verse 7, talking about spiritual gifts. And uh, if you go to the notes, I, I have some things in there on spiritual gifts. Um, uh, four six, just talk about that a little bit, a brief theology of spiritual gifts. I think this is really confusing today because when you think of spiritual gifts almost all almost universally, um, the thought goes to thinking of um, oh of uh, tongues. I mean that's that's a thing, you know, or, or what Benny Hinn does, the slaying in the spirit and all that stuff. And uh, what happens is a lot of times we think of that when it comes to spiritual gifts, and usually the gifts that people like to talk about today are the showy ones, but I think uh, it would help to look at just a brief theology of these. This is sort of pulled together from a lot of resources. Number one, all Christians have them. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift, and um, I think that's a singular gift. Um, I think the New Testament says it's a singular gift, but it's made up of many different components, many different enablements. And um, when we look at the, the uh, list of gifts in the New Testament, and I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I think there's 28 distinct ones mentioned. Um, you have a list in Romans chapter 4, or chapter um, 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 8. You have a list in Ephesians 4 here. You have one in um, 1 Corinthians 12, which is the biggie. Then you have one over in, uh, I think, First Peter. But uh, if you look at the spiritual gifts, um, some people say, well, that's all they are. And I, I don't think it is. I think that's just some examples. I think the spiritual gift lists that you find in the New Testament are just examples of what spiritual gifts are. But there could be other ones that aren't listed there. But all Christians have them. Every one of us does. And it was given and energized, number two, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who decided what your gifting should be, and he gave that to you. And not only that, but he energizes that gift as well, which is how you can tell if you have a, or how you can tell what your spiritual gift is. Is it something you enjoy doing? Is it something that has an impact on others? Is it something that ministers to other people? All of those questions should be yes if it's your spiritual gift. If whatever you're doing to serve the Lord is a burden and a pain and you don't like it and you can't stand it, that's probably not what your spiritual gift is. Um, God doesn't give you a spiritual gift to make you miserable. He gives you a spiritual gift that you enjoy doing and that you feel the power of God working in you when you're exercising it. And then they're given to minister to others, not ourselves. That's a very important one. 
Because when you look at the spiritual gift um, confusion today, their gifts are meant to um, exalt oneself, not to edify the body. Um, this gift doesn't do, a spiritual gift does not do you any good if you use it all by yourself for yourself. That's not a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is given to um, help the body out, the body of Christ, not yourself. And then uh, they are essential for the health of the body of Christ. Number four, um, you should be exercising your spiritual gift, whatever that may be. Um, if you're not exercising your gift, you need to do it. Because it doesn't do anybody any good if you just leave it all to yourself. Um, we're supposed to be helping others out in the body of Christ. They are to unite the body of Christ, not divide it. Now that's a really important thing. You know, there is no such thing as the gift of gossip or the gift of um, critical spirit. Um, they are to unite the body of Christ. They are to bring Christians together. They are to minister to one another. And unfortunately, what you see a lot of times today is people, when they exercise their spiritual gift, it splits and fragments the body of Christ. And that's not what God intended things to be, the way He intended things to be. Um, they are not a measurement of spirituality. That is a very important one. Um, you got to understand that um, a person's spirituality in, in, in sight of God does not depend on what gift they may or may not have. Now see, that's the problem that you see today. Um, when you pick up Benny Hinn's book, Anointed, he has the idea that if you're not anointed in this and that, that then somehow you're, you're missing out on God's best. You're not as spiritual as he is, who's been anointed. Um, and this is one of the common mistakes in the whole charismatic movement, where they say those who are the most spiritual are the ones that can lay on the floor and squirm and bark like a dog and growl like a lion and laugh uncontrollably. Um, that's not spirituality. Okay, that's not what it means to be spiritual. And, uh, for example, you know, when you look at a church, you think, well, the spiritual people, they're the ones that are the leaders. They're the ones that have the gift of preaching or something. They're the most spiritual ones. Well, not necessarily. The lady who runs the nursery may be more spiritual than the pastor. Because it has nothing to do with what your gift is as to how spiritual you are. And I think we make a mistake sometimes to think that, well... Um, only those people with the big uh, gifts, the ones that are standing in front of people, they're, they're the ones that are really gifted by God. Well, God needs a lot of other giftedness too. I use the example, how long would you come to a church if nobody cleaned the bathrooms? You know, not very long. Um, it's, it's, all of us are needed. The point is, all of us are essential to the health of the body of Christ. For example, you go to 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the, the eyeball syndrome. You know, if the eye says, I have no need of the hand, that's kind of dumb, right? Or if the hand says, well, you know, I, I'm not the eye, therefore I'm not needed. See, there are, two, there are two extremes. One is, I don't have a prominent gift, therefore I, I'm not really necessary to the healthy functioning of the body of Christ. That's the inferiority complex. And then there's the superiority complex, complex which says, well, since I'm the one teaching, I'm much more important than anybody else around here. Uh, that's the eyeball syndrome. 
And the thing to understand is that we're all needed for the proper functioning of the body, all of us, whatever gift you have. And then they fall into various categories, number seven there. And the whole notion there is not only do the gifts fall into various categories, but the way in which they are used are different too. I do very well teaching a class like this, but I do not do well teaching first graders. Others may do very well at teaching first graders and not be able to teach adults, yet both have the gift of teaching. God may use you in different ways, and that's, that's the way God has designed the body of Christ. If everybody was a preacher, or everybody was a teacher, or everybody was a helper, it would be pretty sad in the church. What God has done is he's given the gifts out to enable the body to function properly. And that's just a brief theology of the spiritual gifts as we see them in the New Testament. Um, everybody has them. They're not meant for show. They're not a measure of spirituality. They are essential for the healthy functioning of the body of Christ. And invariably, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but people say, well, what, what gifts do you have today? What are they today? Well, um, I think the Bible has three basic categorizations of these gifts. One is the speaking gift. And that would be preaching, teaching, evangelism, exhortation, you know, all those things that have to do with the speech. Then there are another group of gifts called the serving gifts, which are, I think, predominantly the gift that God has given people in the church, and that is just the gift of helps. Um, just helping other people, uh, having the gift of cleaning the church, baking, working in the church, and assisting others in their needs in life. Some, some of the people I know that they couldn't talk with a plug nickel yet, they had an ability to really help and minister to other people. And that's, that's how you see the body of Christ functioning. Then you have the sign gifts, which I don't think, quite honestly, are for today. That's the tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healing. Um, I don't think that's for today. If you, do a, if you do a brief uh, study of healing in the Bible as opposed to healing you see today, you'll find that there's a great difference. The Bible, you're healed instantaneously. Today you're getting better. In the Bible, God put uh, ears back on and, and, and put arms back on. Today, your lower back pain just went away. You know, how do you, how do you quantify that? Um, in the Bible, it didn't depend on your faith. All it depended on was the faith of the one doing the healing. But today, if you don't get healed, it's your fault. It's certainly not the one doing the healing. He's not the one that lacks faith. It was always done with a word. None of this showmanship. And they did it to everybody. They could heal anybody. Today, you know, you might go to a healing service and be told, we're not doing back pain today, we're only doing headaches. Come back tomorrow for the back pain, or vice versa. Um, it's, it's totally different. So I don't think you see the healing gifts today. I don't think you see tongues today, because the tongue was a spoken language. It wasn't babble. Yeah? What if there's someone who's gifted in foreign languages? Is there any basis in that being used as that? That is the, I don't know. What's yeah. the difference between tongues being gibberish and tongues being another... The biblical usage of tongue is always a known language. 
Because yeah, it was it was like all of a sudden I start speaking in Russian, and I've never I've never taken Russian in my life, but I'm able to communicate in Russian. All right, that would be the that would be this miracle gift of tongues. Um, and Paul always said, if if that happens, who should be there? An interpreter. All right. And how do you interpret gobbledygook? You can't. All right. If you can't interpret it, it's not the biblical tongue. All right. Um, but however, that that's an interesting question because I think God has given certain people immense talents and language and language skills, and that can be used by God as a spiritual gift to um, translate the scriptures, for example, or to go in and, and, and come up with an alphabet so that you could translate a Bible into some native tongue. God can empower those as well. You know, the whole notion is it's service for the kingdom for others, not yourself. That's the point. But I don't think you see the val I don't think tongues are valid today. I don't think it's a valid gift. But yet that's what everybody's running after. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, what about the holy bark from Toronto? The holy laughter, the holy growl. I've, I've seen the laughter at one, one church. You've seen the holy laughter? It's sort of, it's, they, it's not as, you don't hear it about as much now. But, you know, they had the holy laugh. They had people barking like dogs and growling like lions. And that was the manifestation of the Spirit on your life. Now, when I look at the Bible and I see people thrashing around the ground, barking like dogs and growling like lions, what was a common thing about all of them? They were demon-possessed. Don't give me that stuff. Stop and think about it. Suppose you're the average pagan in the world. All right, you're the average pagan, and I come up to you and I say, "Excuse me, I'm doing a survey for church for my church. I would like you to tell me what you know about the Holy Spirit." What do you think people would say? Part of the Trinity. If all they had to go on was what you see on television and reading the news and all that, how would they describe the Holy Spirit? Out of control. Strange. Uh, out of control. Out of control. Mysterious. Mysterious. Emotional. Yeah. People freaking out, falling down. Is that what the Holy Spirit is like? Does God ever reduce you to a state of just being out of control? You know what? That's not that's not even that's not recommended by God. God always says, "Come on now, let's reason together. Let's think this thing over." He doesn't say thrash around the ground rolling uncontrollably in laughter. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God. People say, "Well, I feel good afterwards." Well, yeah, right. If you laugh long and hard, you feel good too. But that doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. The point is, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things that he has no part in. When we look at spiritual gifts in the Bible, they're there to help others in the body of Christ. How do you explain that? I mean, outside of everything else that you see within a church, because I have visited some churches like that, and um, outside of that, it, it 
sounds like they're preaching the doctrine and the correct doctrine and all that, but they're doing those type of things. And it, you know, how do you how do you explain that in a sense, I guess? You know, how could they be correct on one end and then not correct on the other? It's easy. I mean I mean, you see that all the time. I mean, you can be wrong on something. I think part of it goes back to our desire to to have an experience and to have a, you know, to feel good. So, you know, a lot of it's based on that. Experience. Right? Yeah. And also the part of the theology, they, they may understand salvation, but they may not understand this whole concept. Of yeah, there's some other, yeah, that's true. Because the one girl I saw that was behind the podium, actually it was a girl from, uh, I believe it was North Coast Church, it was their singing group that came to this church. And all of a sudden the girl disappeared, the lead singer, like, where'd she go? And she's behind the pulpit, laying on the floor, laughing, and they're singing a song, Holy, Holy is the Lord. You know? It just, it, it's, it it's irritated God, me. You know? where, where was this at? Um, it was got. So they're singing, holy is the Lord, and she's on the floor laughing. Well, right. I'll tell you what, when you're standing around the throne of God in heaven, you're saying, holy, 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 you're not going to be on the ground laughing. Yeah, that, it was such a weird contrast. All right. It, it, it didn't mix well with me. Yeah, well, it shouldn't have. Yeah. I have a question. Which... Oh, Josh got in here just in time. <laughs> I'm here? He's our closet. He's our closet. No, I'm just kidding. Our closet charismatic. We're just, we're picking. Right. Oh. Uh, yeah, we're waiting for you. Those people who, who believe that they have the spiritual gift of tongues or believe that they have the spiritual gift of healing, I, I use believe very loosely. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that they are in sin. Are they? You believe they're in sin. I look at them as false teachers. I look at him as a liar. I would look at him as this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. I've never really thought of it in that term. Is it? I think I think somebody can genuinely believe they have the gift of tongues. I, I agree with that. Okay, generally believe it. Um, generally believe it. I think they are wrong in their theology, but to say they are in sin. I'd have to think about that. I certainly think they're wrong. Now, I'll tell you what, I would say, if they say tongues is necessary for salvation, or if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not saved. Now, now they've crossed the line, in my opinion. Now, now, now they're patently in error. Okay. Um, but you take a Jack Hayford out there who really believes, you know, some of these sign gifts, and, you know, th this is a very godly man. I mean, this is, this is a man who loves the Lord, obviously, and, who has a good ministry? Yeah, he's followed up on this, but you know he, he's not followed up on salvation or anything like that. He preaches the gospel. What is it sin? I wouldn't. I'd have to think about that. I'm not ready yet to say it's sin. Any more than I'm ready to say, is it sinful for me to be wrong about the theological issues? But wouldn't, um, doesn't sin always have to do with I think it has to do with our heart, but 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 this is this is an interesting point that he brings up. Um, is it sinful to be wrong theologically? But if you don't know it, 
Uh, no, I don't think so. Because uh, we each, we are at different uh, points of uh, maturity, mm -hmm. in our work with the Lord. And if we're walking according to the light, according to the revelation that, that you know, the Lord has uh, shown us, then we're not sinning. And uh, of course, uh, if um, whatever we're doing is not proceeding from faith, then we are sinning. So if, if we're doing something because we're, we're trying to impress someone else, even when it, it's going against the, what we know to be true, and that's what we'll be saying. But, if, you know, for example, people who live in, in a strengthening as opposed to immersion, I wouldn't say they are sinning. Um, maybe just, you know, they haven't understood the whole thing. Maybe they haven't read the Bible from, you know, in Greek. You know, to, you know the meaning of, uh, you know, baptism. But I wouldn't say, you know, what do you think, Don? Well, I was there. Yeah. Like maybe if we're walking in the light, maybe some people are walking with 25 watts and other people are walking with 50. And, you know what I mean? Where did it come out of you? Good intelligence. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, you know, to say that if you're wrong, on any theological point that you're in sin, I think that's going too far. Because quite honestly, I'm wrong about a lot of things, I just don't know what they are yet. Um, when I find out, I'll fix them. But until then, I don't know. But they're not, they're not the big things. Now, I'll tell you what, if you're wrong on salvation and, and you're teaching a false way of salvation, now, now you've crossed the line. Now, now I think, yes, now you're a false teacher. Now you're in, you're in, in serious error, you're in sin. Are you being blasphemous? I don't think you're being blasphemous if you truly deep down believe that with the proper attitude. I don't think it's being blasphemous. But that is a good question. Do we have any scripture you know. to back it up? Either which way? Yeah, I mean, does the Bible say if, you, if, you, uh, if you're wrong about some theological point, you're a sinner? You're in sin. I don't think it says that. I think we all need to strive for And like she says right there, all of us are on a different way to maturity. You know I mean, things quite honestly, I'll tell you what right now, things that probably two years ago I did not consider sin, I do now because I've, I've changed. I'm different. I'm, I've grown. And um, I think God, I think God takes that into consideration you know, our maturity level. Now, there's some things, again, you go beyond the line. You know, when you're teaching error that sends people to hell, you're, you're, that's wrong. That's definitely sin. And you place yourself under God's judgment. To be wrong on, you know, maybe the, the, the existence of tongues today, I don't think that's sin. I think you might be wrong about it, but it's not sinful. If you teach it, it's necessary for salvation, I think you've, Got some serious problems at that well, point. Well, you honestly believe that? You're wrong. Interpretations. Yeah, you're still wrong. I mean, I mean, yeah. Um, see, that's what, see, that's where you come across. The, the problem there is when you're talking about, if you're talking about tongues as a necessary 
requirement for salvation, then you are then what you're doing is you're changing the salvation the the presentation of the gospel. Yeah. At that point, then you're in sin. But you know, I, I don't recall anywhere in, in in my study of Thomas where you know it says if somebody or if they were in, in, in theology in any way that if they error in their theology, which humans are prone to do quite often, and that is error, if they err in their theology, that and they don't know it, that they're in sin. I mean, personally, I feel I feel to see where where that would be sent. <coughs> because if it, if that's the case, because I mean, you got you got plenty of other things that are even even less than tongues that people believe that are just, you know, downright idiotic in my opinion. But, you know, they believe it from maybe one verse that they've seen in Leviticus, which if we go back to Leviticus, we can, we can get into a whole bunch of stuff that'll, that'll blow a lot of our minds. And if you still believe that, and stick with that, and you want to, you know, stick to your guns on that one, then you've got a whole different situation. So I feel that I fail to really see where where any anything like that could, would be sin. Mm-hmm. Really do. Um, the one scripture that comes to my mind it says to know to do sin and um, to know to do wrong and to do it to him is sin. So he that knoweth to do good doth it not to him it yeah. is sin. That's our Romans thirteen fourteen, I think. I think a lot of it has to do with the culture you brought up in or the environment. Um, I was in Belgium a few years ago and I met missionaries from all over the world, New Zealand, South Africa, Sudan, mm -hmm. um, everywhere. And uh, Johan Lacasa, the Belgian evangelical mission, he said there's only two things that we all have to agree on. One, that the Bible is the divine word of God and all true. And the other one is the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ. And everything else is just something to argue with. Right. I probably wouldn't go as far as that, but I would say he's onto something there. I mean, you know, those of you who've had me know my triangle that I use. Um, and those of you who haven't, I'll talk about it in just a few minutes. But, you know, I, I split things up into basically, and by the way, I got a paper on my website, if you can ever get to it, that has this. Um, that, ha that has you know, the, these, this level of things. You notice at the top is a very small triangle of essential things. That's the stuff that we can't, we can't bend on. That's the stuff that sends people to hell. And I think that God has made those things very clear. I mean, there, there's no discussion. That, not, not, there's not a single doctrine in that top triangle that depends on the interpretation of any single verse in the Bible. It's throughout the Bible. I would place up there things like uh, the inerrancy and inspiration of the word of the Bible. You blow that, I mean, you're you're sliding downhill. I would place uh, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. Really, that all falls in up here. That's that's what you got to agree on. You know, for example. Catholics would have the same triangle with their essentials, and their essentials would be totally different from what yours are. The problem is, saying the same thing. yeah, the problem is, and this is where the argument comes on, on what do you base these essentials? If you base them on the Bible and your tradition, 
you're a Catholic. If you base them on the Bible and the Book of Mormon, you're a Mormon. If you place them on the Bible and Charles Taz Russell, whatever, you're a Jehovah Witness. If you place them on the Bible and Mary Baker Glover, Edison Patterson, Fry Ford, you're a Christian Scientist. I think the only valid way you determine those essentials is the Bible alone. I think that's only where you get, that's the only place you get those. But God's made these clear. I mean, that's the thing. God has made essential truth clear. You know, we don't have to argue about this stuff. I mean, it's, it's there. It's, it's throughout the Bible. It's not hidden. God, if, if there's anything God wants us to know, he wants us to know this stuff. And he's made it very clear in the Bible, the Word of God, what it is. Now, underneath that, we have this old conviction area. And that's where we have things that, that are not essential for salvation, but we have very strong opinions on. The charismatic issue would fall into this. You know, the, the, the validity of tongues, not, not whether tongues are for salvation or not, but just that it is possible to have tongues today. Um, a lot of other things would fall in there. Um, the role of women in church would fall into there. You can go to a church with a woman pastor and go to heaven. I think it's very wrong. In fact, I disagree very strongly with it. I think the Bible teaches very clearly against that. But you can get to heaven underneath a woman pastor. I mean, that can happen. But I have a very strong conviction on that. Right. All right? This is where I break fellowship. This is where I may limit fellowship. It's not that I'm going to say these people are heretics and are divine wrath. I think they're wrong. I think I can debate them. But I wouldn't go so far as to say they're heretic. Then underneath that, in the largest area of all, is the preferences. What version of the Bible do you use? You know, how, what, what music do you sing on Sunday morning at church? Do you wear pants or slacks as a woman or a skirt? Is your hair below your ears or above your ears? No, that stuff's preference. <coughs> you know, that, that's irrelevant, really. And, and, and you're not at sin. You know, there are colleges you go to that if you wear your hair below your ears as a man, you're sinning before God. You've got to go repent of that sin. It's stupid, but, you know, what they do is they shove everything up at the top. All right? You don't have to worry about that, right, Willie? No. Yeah. Um, I don't get Yeah. Where would you put up those that believe that it's possible to lose your salvation? Would that go under essentials? It depends on what you mean by that. And we talked about that in Galatians. Right. If they're truly born again and then they get all fouled up, that's something that we, we need to debate on. If they, make it a, if, they, if they come to Christ thinking that somehow they've got to keep it and they've got to earn it, then I'm not sure they're really saved in the first place because they don't understand grace. I don't know if you've ever seen the doctrinal statement of Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one, of those, one of their statements is that um, you can lose your salvation. I don't think you can, but yeah, we debate that. I, I don't think and, you and, can either. I'm just asking yeah. where, you, where you think that would. Is that more? It depends. Kind of It'd be more in here. The way I define essential is this. This is how I define essential. One, if you blow this, you miss a heaven. Right. That's an essential. Or it leads you to gross error or sin. That's why the, the inspiration and authority of the Bible is under there. If you deny that, you know, it's, okay, what part of it is the Word of God then? And you never know where you're going to wind up. That's why I put that up there as an essential. 
Those are all essentials. And I think they're very clear in the Bible. I think, you know, we, we need to split over those things. Also, an essential doesn't change over time. If it was essential in the first century, it's essential today. God doesn't change his, his, his thing. So, like all of these things, for example, I, I went to a church where one of the essentials was the pre-tribulational rapture. Well, 200 years ago, nobody discussed that because it wasn't even thought of. Nobody talked about a rapture 200 years ago. Nobody talked about it. it wasn't, so how can it now become an essential if it wasn't? It can't be an essential. Now, it can be a conviction if you want, but it's not an essential. You don't call Pearson a heretic that may disagree with you on that. I know some people do, but I don't think that's right. And I think as you go, as you work your way down to the bottom of the pyramid, the, 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 the biblical basis for a lot of these things becomes more and more unclear. Is there any verse in the Bible that tells you what version of the Bible you have to use? Any verse at all? I've heard them quoted by the KJV only crowd, but they're quoting the KJV. And they're saying, see, it says here the, the Word of God endures forever. And that's the KJV. No, it says the Word of God endures forever. It didn't say the KJV endured forever. See? But as you work your way down, things become more unclear. And I think you can make less of an argument. However, in answer to the question in this long-winded answer, I think once you get up into this essential area where what you're teaching is going to, A, lead to gross sin, or two, it's going to cause people to miss heaven, I think you've crossed the line. And I would say, yeah, that is sin. I'll tell you what else, is, what else I think is sin. And that is there are those things that are not essential, but God tells you that if you disobey, is sin, right? Anytime you disobey God, it's sin. So there may be things that God tells you that, that would not fall into the essential category because they're not directly um, going to send you to heaven or hell or not, but they would be something the Bible makes fairly clear that you shouldn't do, and if you do that, it's sin. Is that confusing anybody? That's how I work through it myself. And where I put this whole charismatic tongues, all this issue, I throw it into this conviction category. Unless they cross the line and say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Now, now they're, now I can, you know, that's error. That, we got to deal with that. Because the Bible doesn't teach that at all. And, and here's the other thing. Let me, let, me, let me just throw something else in here, which is interesting. I found as I've grown in my spiritual life, all right, the number of essentials has diminished. The number of those. My willingness to die for them has increased. I'm much more willing to shed blood over what I believe are essentials than I was several years ago. But the number of things I'm willing to die over has been reduced. All right, I'm much more tolerant in a sense of people that don't have all 950 points of my doctrine right. Okay. And also I've noticed at, that, that certain things will move, will shift in this pyramid as you mature in your Christian life. <clears throat> like she said there, that, you know, there are some things that maybe 10 years ago you'd think nothing of. 
today if you do that, you really feel convicted about it. Well, to you it's sin now, so don't do it. Because you've grown, you've matured. Things have, have moved. Now, I don't think things move in and out of this essential category. I mean, if it's essential, it's essential. But if sin is sin 10 years down the road because you've matured, sin is sin 10 years back. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I don't think there's any gray area. I think as you mature in your spiritual life, as you grow up, so to speak, um, your responsibility before God increases. Yeah, maybe it's still sin in both areas, but later you are held at a higher responsibility for it. That might be a good way, a higher standard, yes. Yes, I, I, would, I would, yeah. I, I would say that. Because I'm saying, you know, there are new Christians that do things, they have no idea if it's sin or not, you know. They're, they love the Lord, they're serving with all their heart. You know, God's not up there saying, well, you know, they haven't learned all the points of doctrine, we're going to roast them now because they've done this thing wrong. Any more than you do for your children. You know, as they're growing up, kids do things that, you know, they're just not old enough yet to understand and know. But there comes a point in which now all of a sudden they do have an understanding. They are responsible and they're held at a higher standard. And I, I think that's a very good way to put it there, I think. I think that's, that's good. Yeah. It's, it's like, unfortunately, that six-year-old boy that shot the girl in school. Yeah. You know, can you expect him to be at the same standard as an 18-year-old? No. You know, it doesn't change the fact that what he did was wrong. No. You know, but you, can you expect him to be at the same standard? Well, stop and think about it. You're a little kid. You see guns going off all the time on TV, right. you know. And even if he did it out of anger, you know, he's yeah. six years old. He can't, he can't, I don't know, if he, I don't think he can really comprehend truly what he did. And they said after they interviewed him, he sat there and colored in his coloring book. Probably not. Yeah. Probably he didn't. So I think it's the same spiritually. Oh. But, but, and that, that leads something very important. That is the more you know, the more God holds you accountable. Right. You're held at a higher standard. I mean, you look, at the, you look at the office of an elder in the church, they're held at a very high standard. You know, they're held at a higher standard than the people in the church. Because they have more responsibility. So something that the average person in the church could do, the elder can't. Because he's held at a higher standard. It's not that God has double standards. It's that as you grow, as you mature in your faith, as you become more, as you grow in your understanding of Scripture, you're more accountable for what you know. Yeah, I like that. That's a good, that's a good way to understand it. Not easy questions. Not easy questions. Um, and I, th I think just, just as an aside, personally, that's one of the things we need to be very careful of. Is when, we, when we study the Scripture, we need to really seek God's face, that He would help us understand it. Because He will. He'll do that. I think that's a huge reason why a lot of Christians don't try and go deeper in faith. Apathy is a lot easier than being held responsible, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people understand that if I know it, then I'm responsible for it. I was at that point in my life where I didn't want to know anything else because I, I didn't want to be held responsible for anything else, you know. And then I, you know, it's one of those things too where the more you know, the more you figure out you don't know anything. Right. You know. You think you know something, then you 
study the Bible more and you find out you didn't know half as what you thought you did. You know. That's one of the things I, I found out as I grow in my spiritual life, I know less and less. Um, it's old age. But uh <laughs> But it, but it also it, it needs you need to have a heart of humility because you can't go through life thinking that you've got all the right answers to every theological question. I used to think that, and then I found out I didn't know a lot of the questions. You know, and and um, there's some questions that are they're just tough to answer and figure out. You know, so think about that. You say something, Don? Is that your final answer? Yeah. Verse 11, we're, let's move on. And he gave, himself, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. I think pastor teacher, there's a hyphenated one. These are the gifted men of the church. God gave us spiritual gifts, and then he has also given to the church gifted men. Now, have you ever seen your pastor as a gift from God? You ever thought of that? Well, you should because he is. He's a gift to the church along with the evangelists, along with the apostles and the prophets. He's a gifted man that God has given the church. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is, Paul is viewing the spiritual gifts in terms of the body, and he's looking at these gifted men as gifts of God to the body in order to help the body function better. And the, the gifted men that he lists here, there are four of them in nature, there are four of them he lists. He lists an apostle. What's that one? Who's the apostles? The 12. I think this is the 12 apostles that God has given. He gave apostles. Then it says he gave prophets. Who are they? Who are the prophets? Yeah, they were given, I think specifically, they were given revelatory knowledge. All right. Now, the word, you understand, the word prophet in the Bible generally means just one who speaks for God. I mean, that's the predominant term. It's not necessarily predictive in nature. But we've, we've endowed it with that predictive. When we think of a prophet, we think of some guy with a long robe and a gray beard telling you what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, the Bible prophet is somebody who just preached. If you look at Isaiah, a lot of what he said was just sermons to his, his generation. Although God did give them in those days special divine revelation directly from him. All right. Then you have uh, evangelists. Who are those? Where's the evangelists? Yeah, they can go and establish churches and take the name of Christ to places that have not heard it and proclaim the gospel and plant a church and, and build a church. And then you have the pastor teachers. Who are they? They are the ones who come along after the evangelist 
and establish the church. Pastor means to shepherd, to lead. Teacher, of course, means to teach the church the divine truth. Now, as you look at these four gifted offices, which ones do you have today? Well, we know we have this one, right? Mm -hmm. And we know we have evangelists. Right. Do we have prophets? No. Well, it depends on what you mean by prophet. If you mean by prophet a preacher, yeah, we have those. If you mean by prophet people who get revelation directly from God, no, we don't. All right? So you get a half check mark there. All right? We don't have apostles today. An apostle in the New Testament was one who saw the risen Christ. Now, in spite of what they tell you about from TV, the guys on TV have not witnessed the risen resurrected Lord. All right? Um, they've not talked to Jesus in bodily form. Okay. Yeah. Why is Paul called an apostle? Because he saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. All right, he personally witnessed the resurrected Lord. And by the way, the apostle was also personally commissioned by Christ. All right, it was a personal commissioning. And Paul was personally commissioned. So what you have is you have the pastor, teacher, the evangelist, and the prophet in the sense of a preacher, but no apostles today. And I think you see these in the church. Now, one of the mistakes that we have, I think, a lot of times, and I think we need to be very careful of this, is we've got to understand that God has gifted different men differently. If I want to learn doctrine, I don't sit under Billy Graham. He's not a doctrinal teacher. What does he do? He evangelizes the lost. I'm not going to sit under Bill Bright to take systematic theology. He's an evangelist. He can talk to anybody about Christ. All right? Um, that's his giftedness. If I want to learn theology, I'm going to go to the pastor teacher. I'm going to go to, to him, not to an evangelist. And the point that we need to make is we need to understand that not every man that God has given the church is gifted identically the same. And we need to understand and, and, and just realize that whatever church we're in, that God has not gifted every pastor the same. I remember a lot of times, I remember back a few years, I had a couple of friends, they really didn't like the way our pastor preached. They wanted him to be more exegetical. They wanted more Greek words and all that thrown in and all this stuff. And I had a problem with that because I would sit there and think, you know, why have a Sunday school class full of people that every week somebody comes in and says, you know, the message really spoke to me this morning. And God really spoke to me. Now, if, if he is wrong in the way he's preaching, why is it that God's speaking to these people? I'm, the point I'm trying to make is, style is a dead-end road. All right? Don't, don't get hung up on style. Ask yourself, is the word of God proclaimed clearly? And are people being ministered to? And are they being challenged? That's the issue. And the way God, I mean, you all know, I mean, if you listen to MacArthur, Swindoll, and Stanley, they all have different styles. How many, pe how many people like Swindoll better than any of the other ones? 
How many people like How many people like uh, Jeremiah better? How many people like MacArthur better than any of the other ones? Nobody. Y'all flunk. No. I want an Yeah, no. The whole point is, the whole point is, I like all of them. All right. I'll sit. I'll listen to Charles Swindoll. But I'll tell you what, if I wanted to study a diet of something, I wouldn't listen to him. I listen to John MacArthur. I just, I don't know, I like his preaching better. That doesn't make him any better than Chuck Swindoll. I like the style better. So one may be a deeper thinker in a sense. Yeah. MacArthur versus Swindoll. If you took MacArthur and you brought him to our church and made him the pastor of our church, people would die in the pew. They can't handle him. I've been out to MacArthur's church. You know what MacArthur's church is like when you're sitting in the pew? I look down the pew and everybody has their Bible out and a notebook and a pen taking notes. I have never seen people take notes in our service. I've not seen a lot of them. All right. I mean, and, and the whole church, the point is, the whole church is used to that. Right. Okay? I mean, that, that's what they're used to, and they love it, and that's great. But now you go over to Chuck Swindoll's church, and his is the, you know, he, Chuck reminds me of the guy who comes over and, you know, let's have a cup of coffee and talk about spiritual things and have a chat. I mean, that's, that's how I see his preaching style. Is that okay? Yeah, I like having coffee and chatting once in a while. All right. Jeremiah, he's all right, too. It's just that they're different styles. And they're all used by God. Remember, it goes back to this area of spiritual giftedness. God can gift everybody with the gift of preaching and teaching, but yet they minister to different people. And one of the strengths, this is what we need to understand, one of the strengths of the body of Christ is that we all appeal to different groups of people. There are people in this church that like my teaching better than our pastor's teaching. I don't know why, but they do. And there are other people that can't stand to listen to me, but they love to listen to him. So I think together, both of us will be better to reach more people than anyone all by themselves. So chill. You know, so many people, it's amazing how many people get upset over this stuff. Yeah. I have another question about the prophets, those who, okay. who, who claim to be getting divine uh, revelation. They're nuts. Are they in sin? Yeah, of course. I enjoy that. Are they in sin? Um, <laughs> is, it, is it sin? Is it or isn't it? false teaching. At this point, having not thought about it and being put on the spot, I would say no, it is not sin if they genuinely believe that. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong. I don't think it's sin. All right. Now, if they're teaching false doctrine, i.e., a, a false. That's sin. That's sin. Straight and narrow. Yeah. Am I going to say Jack Hayford's a sinner because he believes he gets divine revelation from God? No, I'm not going to say that. I think he's wrong, but I'm not going to say he's a sinner on that. I won't go that far. But I'll tell you what, when you get these uh, Kansas City prophets that are, that are patently teaching false doctrine, they've crossed the line. Willie, you're... Yeah, I was thinking about what he was saying because... 
there are people that can come and say, you know what, God told me to tell you. Right. Like, I think somewhere you got to draw the line because if somebody's lying, or they may genuinely think that. They may have gotten an impression to tell you something and think it comes from God. I mean, did the Holy Spirit convict you somewhere along you know, the way? I, my, my standard he response is, well, he know. hasn't told me that. I mean, the Spirit is there, you know. for, he's there for a reason. Yeah, but I, I, think, I think it's possible for people to be significantly fouled up, not be in sin, and if they're truly born again, God will chase them out. Chasing them and bring them around, um, but the, but the danger is once you start saying if if you do anything wrong, if you teach anything wrong, it's sin. Well, we're all sinners. I mean, we better not teach anything because there are things I teach in this class that are probably wrong. I don't know what they are. If I did, I'd change them. I'm not wrong on the essentials. I'll tell you that. Yeah, Barb. Um, does that mean that the, the pastor is supposed to be equipped to teach, or does it actually mean that there is a pastor and there should be also teachers? The, the, well, there's a great debate, and you can read it in some commentaries on whether it's pastor, comma, teacher, or pastor, dash, teacher. All right? I think, I think one of the things that the elders should, should have is apt to teach. I mean, that's one of the qualifications for a pastor. If you've got a pastor that can't teach... He shouldn't be a pastor. I mean, that that's that goes with it. Only the pastor, not the preacher. Pastors over. Well, it depends what you mean. You know, if, if you if you want to say there's there's modern day prophets, in in a proclamatory sense. See, see what this is. This is how I, I view the difference. If there's anything, if. If you want to say there's a prophet, the prophet is a guy who comes into town and and leads a revival service, whatever. A pastor is the one who stays there to nurture people. Right. He's the nurturer. All right. I've known I've, I've known people. I know a couple right now. I could tell you their names. They stunk as a pastor, big time. But I'll tell you what, they could preach. And what they should have been doing for the Lord is going from church to church preaching. But once you said you got to shepherd this flock, disaster. They couldn't handle it. Everybody's not a pastor. Not everybody's gifted as that. Find out what you're gifted at and do it. That's that's all. I mean, that's 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 pretty easy. The church my parents go to, you know, somewhat of a charismatic church. They tell me there is a difference between a preacher and a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, they say they would rather be taught. I'm saying, well, it's the same thing, isn't it? I think I think, yeah. I, th I think, you know, if you want to see the, the, the difference, this would be more your preacher, preacher. This would be the person who teaches, and like in a class like this, I'd be more this than prophet. I'm not a prophet. And I'm not an evangelist. I've tried it, and it doesn't work. Okay, now, back again to the teaching value. Would you consider, like, like what you're doing, for example? Isn't that like a gift to the body, obviously? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. I would probably be here. I'm not a pastor, I'll tell you what, I'm not a shepherd, but I can teach. And there's, there's a whole spectrum of, of yeah, giftedness here. What's the difference between pastor and teacher? I mean, it's not a degree mm -hmm. that makes the difference. No, it's the person. This is just the gifted men.
Paul lists several gifted men. One of them, now, there are spiritual gifts that go beyond these gifted men. But these are gifted men that God has given to the church. And the purpose he's given to the church is given in verse 12. For the building up of the saints, for they can do the work of the ministry to edify the body of Christ. Could those gifts be given to women? Well, let me ask you that. I think so. I believe so. Women can teach. teach. Women can be evangelists also. Women can preach too. Anybody else want to agree with her? I agree. I think a, I think a woman can teach. I think it's hard as a command. A woman can do evangelism. What do you do about a woman missionary? Yeah, she's a mission. She's an evangelist. She's a teacher. I disagree with one of the pastors of churches that they are the they are the it. That's probably that's probably where I would draw the line there. I think within within the church, within within a, a the a local assembly of believers, women are not to be pastors. And I'll tell you this, I believe women should not teach in the local assembly if you're talking about that being a group of men or preaching. I don't believe that's right. I'll tell you what I do think is right. I think there are women that teach other women. That's, that's certainly what Titus 2 says, right? The older women are teach the younger women. And I think there's, there's an avenue for that. I, I'm not, I don't think in the local assembly, the church, you should have a woman pastor or a woman teacher. Teaching adult, you know, the adult services or whatever, or even an adult Sunday school. That, that's where I would stand on that. Because I think Titus or 1 Timothy 2 is pretty clear on that. You know, I know, I know a lot of people do a lot of backflips and handsprings and all that stuff around that, that passage. However, what about one-on-one? -on -one? What about uh, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos? That's certainly acceptable. Certainly acceptable for a woman and her husband to disciple some other people. That's certainly acceptable to have happen. What about women missionaries? There you mentioned that. I mean, there are some places in the world that have been evangelized by women and other mm -hmm. else is willing to go. Maybe what I would draw the line is, though, of them being the pastor of the church. No. That's where I would draw the line. I have nothing against, I mean, women can be evangelists, yeah. Evangelize the loss? Yeah. I think it was First Timothy that I uh, report on for the last class that we had. And I was learning the background on this about the women and that. And mainly it's because the women were into uh, worshiping the idols and the men were worshiping the women and all this other stuff that Paul was saying uh, what he did. You really believe that? It's history. I'm kidding. I'm yeah. <laughs> that's one of those essentials, huh? That's one of the that's one of the backflips and handsprings people do to try and get around what the Bible I think clearly teaches. I think the Bible is really clear. I mean, Paul made it very clear. He says, I suffered not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, how can you be in silence and teach? You can't. 
Yeah, sign language. <laughs> and then, and then it says, and then, and then here's the thing. Paul says the reason for this. He goes back to the creation or the creation ordinance. Man was first created, then the woman. The man not being deceived, but the woman's being deceived, etc. He goes back to the creation. Now what happens is people say, well, that what it means is, look, you know, after the fall, that's true, but. What happens is the church re restores men and women back to the pre-fall condition, in which case there was total equality. So yeah, in the church he can teach. No, it doesn't say that. I mean, Paul. It seems to me Paul goes to great lengths to make it clear that. In, and notice what I'm saying. It's in the local assembly, and he says that in First Timothy he says that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In the local assembly of church, when we are gathered together to worship, a woman is not to teach or to preach. It doesn't prohibit prayer. Now, personally, if you want my opinion, you want my opinion? I probably would not. If I was a pastor of a church, I probably would not have a woman pray. Not because the Bible says she can't pray. You mean to come before the All right. prayer? Yeah. Is that what you were saying? The pastoral prayer. Yeah, All right. And again, notice what this is. This is in the context of the gathered assembly for the church service, if you want to call it. Now, when you're when you're in a home Bible study or or something like that, that's not what that's not what First Timothy is written about. I don't think. It's what, written about the, the church. Why does the location make a difference? Because that is what 1 Timothy was written to. It was talking about the local assembly, the church, as they met to, as they gathered to edify one another, build one up, that kind of thing. And I think that I think you can make the case for that. I think you can. I mean, I think the Bible's clear. Now, some people say, well, it's not so clear, and they do all kinds of things to try and make it say what it doesn't. But I think the Bible's very clear on that. And that's not relegating a woman to a second-class citizen or anything like that. It's just that's God's created. That's the way it's. That's the way God created it. Now, you, you don't you don't believe that part of the if we are trying to keep in context what was said that it had nothing to do with the culture. The problem, time, yeah, and the culture now is different. Yeah, at that time and even at this time, that culture, the woman. Holds a different place than they hold That's back. one of the major arguments that people make saying, look, it's just a cultural thing. But if I take that argument, I can take every single book of the Bible and culturalize it away. And saying all it had to do was the culture of that time. I can, I can take it all and just culturalize it away. And here's the other argument against that. Paul does not hint that it was a cultural thing because he bases it on the creation ordinance, which goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And that, that's why I would argue against that. It's based in the order of creation, not in some cultural thing. All right. Whereas, now I'll tell you what's different in 1 Corinthians 14, when it talks about the head coverings and all of that kind of stuff, that I think is a, I think that is a cultural thing there. Because he doesn't go back to the creation ordinance and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas here he does, and that's why I would make a difference. The, the danger is what, what people do is they do explain it away by saying that. Well, it was just a cultural thing. Or he was just talking about the women in that church who were in error. 
One of them was, well, he's talking about the women in that church who were teaching error. Well, why would he single out the women? If a man teaches error, he needs to shut up as well. All right? All the arguments that they make for this, I don't think, really hold water. And I have a paper on that out on my website, if you can get to it. Even, even, either I have the wrong Bible or something, but even the Bible doesn't care. You have the wrong. Make some comments, you know, about First Timothy, where he says uh, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission and not teach. And it basically says that uh, in first century Jewish culture, women were not allowed to study. When Paul said that women should learn in quietness and full submission, he was offering them an amazing new opportunity. Paul did not want the Ephesians women to teach because they didn't yet have enough knowledge or experience. Now that's you got the wrong Bible. I don't know who wrote that, but I don't. I don't believe that a bit. Uh, what it is? What it is? I, this you know, we can get we get a. We get, we get, we get going. What it is, what you see here, let me tell you why this is an issue. Because the cultural pressure is erasing the differences between men and women. It is. The cult, it's, it's a cultural thing. It has nothing to do with the biblical text. We wouldn't be arguing this 50 years ago. No, 50 years ago, most everybody was a Baptist. And we wouldn't be discussing this. But now all of a sudden, see, we're all of a sudden with, with the whole idea of women's liberation, all that, all of a sudden people are freaking out, thinking, well, you know, you guys are a bunch of throwbacks to the Victorian age. 50 years ago, though, you know, even especially if you were in Baptist church, though, it was, thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt it's very legalistic. You know, very, very strict. I'll tell you, whatever, whatever position you wind up with on this, you better be able to defend it from the Bible. And you've got to do a better job than explain away the verses by saying, well, that's just a contextual thing, or that was just talking to that church at that time. I mean, I could take every book of the Bible and say, well, you know, all of the stuff we're learning on Ephesians here, that we're going to be learning on, uh, you know, working hard with your hands to give to those who have need. Well, that was just a problem they had at that church at that time, and it really doesn't apply to us today, so we can be lazy. I mean, I can culturalize the whole thing away. You can't do that. You got to be very careful when you do that. There are two. You're saying that verse is to be taken literally, but yet this verse over here, well, it actually means because 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 the text, because from the text you see that. I'm not imposing an external grid. Take away the women's liberation movement. Take away all the modern thought about the egalitarian, the quality of sex. Take all that away. How would you interpret 1 Timothy 2? Just the way it is. Just the way it is. So, it's actually so why is it that it's different now? Because of our culture. Because we're, we're, we're using our culture to mash yeah, it in. To dictate what the word says. Same thing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the same argument. That same argument is used by the homosexual church. They say, we got to understand back in those days, you know, they were unenlightened. They didn't really understand, you know, the complexities of the homosexual issue and all of that stuff. And therefore, of course, Paul condemned them to be burned in hell because he just didn't, you know, he didn't have the modern understanding of behavior that we have today. And so they throw the entire passage of Romans 1 right out the window. I mean, it's the same argumentation. It's the same thing. You got to be very careful. 
I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you where I land on it. You've got you to figure that out for yourself. But just, just be careful wherever you land. You can defend that. Well, we got all these male in the United States that don't know what it means to be a man and accept the responsibility. Yeah. We got, what's the percentage of women that are raping the kids on their own because the men have run off? So it's only natural women will take up another role of leadership just because they have to. That doesn't make it right. I know, it's wrong. Doesn't make it right. You know, I, I'm just saying, whatever, whatever position you wind up with, You've got to defend it from the Bible. I have a question for you then. If uh, Mrs. Radden over there were a preacher or a teacher and you were sitting up here under earth and you considered yourself a Christian and you were saved, you know you were saved, is God going to condemn you to hell because you're, you're learning under a woman? No, see that that's not one of the essentials. Right. That's not one of the essentials. And he wouldn't, no. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. What if she did her preaching in French? It's irrelevant. I will tell you this. If I attended a church where they had women elders, I probably could not attend it. Which means I could not attend Willow Hill Community Church. I, I could not attend that church. Because one of the requirements for church membership there is that you must be willing to submit to the women elders that he has on his, and I could not do that. I could not go to that church. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, they're awful, wicked people, damned and on their way to hell. I, I really have a strong conviction on that. And, and I formed that from what I consider to be a very clear understanding of 1 Timothy. I don't, I don't have to do all kinds of whiz-bangery to explain the thing away. I just take it for what it says. Yeah, I, I have seen that experience in, uh, when I went to Akron. I was living with the family, and they went to this church. It's an evangelical church. But, you know, the pastor of that church is a woman. But both herself and her husband are pastors, and they're pastoring in different churches. And the family that I was living with went to this church, and uh, I only lasted two weeks. I, I couldn't stay there. And um, there were lots of uh, good people there, in fact, very loving. But I, I have no conviction. I couldn't. I couldn't. Stay mm -hmm. I, I didn't get to. Yeah, and 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 you know, you gotta just to be honest. You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna make it my life's goal to condemn everybody that does that. I mean, I have other things to do. Yeah. <laughs> but but I I I could not. I, I honestly couldn't. Now, what do you think of like the ministries of K. Arthur or Joyce Meyer or Gloria Copeland? Are you saying that that's well? First of all, Gloria Copeland's a false prophet, so that's that. Yeah. How about K. Arthur and Joyce Meyer? Okay. Women, men are even blessed by you know you before said. I think if you asked my opinion, and that's what you're asking, all right. I believe K. Arthur's crossed the line. That's my personal opinion. K. Arthur? K. Arthur. As, as a teacher? Yes. Okay. That doesn't mean God can't bless the ministry because God blesses his word in spite of who says it. Yeah, All right. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think I think K. Arthur. Personally, I think she's crossed the line. That, that's you ask my opinion. I will tell you my opinion. All right. Just because it continually comes up, and I, I thought I brought it with me, but I didn't. I went. My aunt um, is very, very charismatic. Of all the charismatics I know, she tops the list. Dances, I see her faint, you know, all of that. And she adores Kenneth Copeland. And so I asked her if she knew his background belief, and she said no. So I went to the website and I emailed them a question on just where he stood on the divinity of Christ and his whether or not he was Jesus Christ was coeval with God the Father, etc. And they sent me back this like four-page answer that didn't even didn't touch on my question. It was like they went to. You ever try to nail a poached egg on a tree? I, I just I just was curious where he got it. Because I just I I believe wholeheartedly that my aunt is saved, but it's very hard to discuss. It's like nailing Jello on a tree. But how can I tell her? I don't know how to find the information that says this is what he believes. What well, you got to do? Yeah. Oh, they've got quotes. It's, if you get the book uh, Christianity and Crisis by Hank Hanegraaff, he he documents from from Kenneth Copeland's own writings, and from his own messages, and the Believer's Voice of Victory, which is his paper. They they pull the quotes right out of there to tell you exactly where Kenneth Copeland lands, and he's not going to be in heaven if he really believes what he says. Which is basically Jesus Christ is not equal to right. God. He basically said, he, well, he talked to a nine-foot Jesus who said he never claimed to be God. I mean, he said that himself. And when Walter Martin, it's interesting, when Walter Martin said, did you really believe that? I said, yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't just a misquote. I mean, it was really, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a problem there. But um, we need to get moving on, but yeah. I wanted to ask about the advantage being an evangelist here, as far as effectiveness in that field, you know, like Baptists in particular can be pretty big in numbers. So, is it, what's, how do you rate your effectiveness as an evangelist? Well, how, how would you rate uh, William Carey? Know about him? He went to India. He was there seven years before he had the first convert. That's one of my thoughts, right? God does not God does not rate your effectiveness on the number of scalps you add to your belt. He rates your effectiveness on your faithfulness. And that's the important thing. If God's called you to do something, people can rate you anywhere they want to rate you. Yeah. It doesn't matter how they rate you. It matters when you stand before God, what's his rating? Yeah, what's his rating? You know, that's that's you're right, that's the important thing. You know, what we do today, we say, well, you know, if you don't have so many people come to Christ, you're not effective. It's not numbers. You know? It's, it's, and by the way, God builds his church. You don't. See? And what we do, we don't see the eternal thing. How would you like to be the shoe store salesman that led D.L. Mooney to the Lord? You know, that guy probably didn't lead a lot of people to the Lord, but look what D.L. Mooney did. God remembers all that. He knows that. So you can't rate your effectiveness on the number of people you actually lead. And you can't expect, you can't rate your effectiveness on how big your church is. Some of the most effective and godly pastors you'll ever find have small congregations. Just because you're the pastor of a big church doesn't make you 
more spiritual than others. But what it says here is it says these are all given for the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ, so we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is talking about maturing. One of the jobs of the gifted men is to mature the body of Christ in their understanding of the Word of God, their understanding of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or a mature man. Um, verse 13. And that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the tricky of men, trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. One of the jobs of the gifted men are to ground people in the word. So you're not like kids that are bounced around on a like a like a like a ball out on the middle of the ocean, you know, just going from wave to wave, just slapped around. And that goes along the idea of spiritual maturity. If you want to ask me where my passion is, it's right here. This, this is my passion, is to mature people in the knowledge of the Word of God. I'm not interested that you know what I know. I'm interested that you know the Bible and the Word of God. Um, and if you know that, when, when the Kenneth Copelands come along and give you a line, you'll pick them out. You'll, you'll be able to see these guys a mile away coming at you. And you're not going to be bounced around. And one of the distressing things I see is we have a great pressure today against this. We're not supposed to be discerning anymore. We're supposed to love everybody and have a group hug with anybody who loves Jesus. And we never get around to asking them, what Jesus is it that you love? You better ask what Jesus they have. Because what happens is we have a church, and I'll tell you what, I've seen it. I've, I call it the dumbing down of the church. Yeah, I've been a Christian now for 33, 34 years, somewhere around in there. And when I was, I grew up in church. I mean, I was always in church. And when I was at church, there's a great deal of what I call biblical literacy among church people. Today, that's not the case anymore. That's not the case. Um, I, I used to play, I like playing, my Donna likes playing Bible trivia. I don't like playing that with people anymore. Because, I remember one time I was playing with this girl. She went to a certain church on the north coast near here. And um, she'd been going there for 15 years. And we were playing Bible trivia. And she didn't know any of the answers any of the questions to any of them. We started using the kids' questions, and she still didn't get those. I'm talking about, like, who was Aaron? She didn't know who Aaron was. All right? I mean, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, deep, tricky questions. I'm talking about personages. Who's David? Dave who? She didn't know. And she'd been going there for 10, 15 years to this church. I'd say, what in the world are they teaching them over there? Now, again, you're not, not everybody's going to be a biblical scholar. But you should know something. We have a church today. It's the dumbing down of the church. People don't know. They don't know. Now, I'll tell you what they do know. They know all the latest episodes of their favorite sitcoms. Oh, they know that. They know all the latest pop psychology drivel that you can pick up. 
But they don't know the Word of God. And there's a problem with that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never thought about it before until you just said it. But I, I think there's a big difference um, in what you learn in what type of service you're in. For example, if you just were to come to this church week after week after week, you wouldn't really come away from here after a couple of years knowing the story of Noah, knowing the story of David, or, or any of that stuff. That's the kind of stuff I learned in Sunday school mm-hmm. type classes. You know what I mean? So You're I, right. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rounding out. But I tell you what, when you go to a church for 15 years, and all you get is a constant diet of jumping up and down and rolling in the aisles and praising God, and gobbledygook, and no one gets around to telling you theologically what's going on, that's dumbing down. There's a problem there. All right? Um, I saw this here in this church 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, in our life classes we had on Wednesday night. I, I did a study on Romans. I had five or six people. At the exact same hour, somebody did a study on birth order. Birth order. And he had a packed class and a waiting list. Wow. Now what's wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. Well, I did birth orders. You know, if you're the first child, this is your carrier. If you're the second and this and all that, and it's just junk. Yeah. All right? It's junk. It's what it is. All right? And, and, and the whole point, you know, I just, I, I go back to that constantly. And I just, I just think about that. You know, what is wrong with people? Let's see. Um, understand theology and God and who he is and what he's like. Or figure out why I have the psychological hang-ups I have because my older brother beat me up all the time. I'm going to go here. I mean, what's wrong with this? You know, yeah. I think it's, a, well, this is my own observation. I think it's a moment of stimulus. Uh, uh, is it second Timothy? In the last days, exactly. When you know people are not going to scratch your ear. Sound teaching, but you know they want like you know, to themselves mm-hmm. uh, teachers that are going to tickle their fancies. I mean, I think that is happening <coughs> because uh, there's very little appetite for you know for the word of God. Well, you the extent of quoting the Bible is somewhere in the Bible. So that, uh, you know, so someone in the Bible is written, you know, and this someone who's trying to convince you, this is true, because somewhere in the Bible, a lot of people, I don't know if people talk like that, yeah. somewhere in the Bible, but, you know, tell them, what is it? So, like, you're saying, if you don't know what the Bible says, if somebody comes and says, yeah, this is true, because somewhere in the Bible, it says this and that, you're just going to, to believe well, that's it. that's the cult. You know, they say, well, you know, the Bible says, blah. Well, I know what the Bible says, and I know what they say, and what, what they say the Bible says, the Bible doesn't say. But the average person in the church who doesn't know any better isn't going to know or have an answer. And again, you know, we're not saying everybody here has to be a Bible scholar, but you're atypical of most Christians today. You know, you, you ask the average Christian, well, what do you do Wednesday night? Well, I go listen to this guy talk for three hours on the Bible, and they roll their eyes and, you know, think you're nuts. You know, um, because that just doesn't appeal to people anymore. To know God, to understand the Word doesn't appeal to them. These gifted men are given to build up the body of Christ, so they're not 
carried about with every wind of doctrine that comes along. How do you tell a spiritually immature person they believe everything? How do you tell a kid from an adult? The kids believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Even the demons believe in that. I mean, kids believe that. But adults have grown beyond that. Why? Because children naturally believe what you say. Spiritual children believe anything anybody says who says, I talk about God. But when you really find out what they believe and compare it to Scripture, there's a significant difference. What do you want to do instead? Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him and all things to him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body of Christ for the edifying of itself in love. This is how your church grows. So exercise your spiritual gift. Minister to one another in what's it say here? Love. Don't do it for the wrong motive. Do it to minister to other people. And the whole body will be joined together and will function correctly. What we have today is a lot of dysfunctional bodies, local assemblies, because people aren't doing what God has called them to do. In verse 17, Paul talks to the believers about the new man. This I say therefore in testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul's going to draw some contrasts here. He likes doing this a lot in, in, in his writings. And the contrast in this particular passage is the old man, new man. What was the old man like? Well, first of all, futility of mind. What's that? It's an inability to think morally. Now, do we have that problem today? The inability to think clearly on moral issues. Well, go watch Jerry Springer and he'll answer your question. They have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They're ignorant, they're blind, they're alienated because of their sin. That doesn't mean they're not smart people. It doesn't mean they can't learn or they're not intelligent. It means that spiritually they are darkened, they are blind, they are ignorant, they don't know the truth. And I've said it before in the class, and I'll probably say it a hundred more times, Jerry Springer says what he says because he is ignorant and blind. And he doesn't have moral sense. And nobody outside of Christ has moral sense. Because it only comes from a knowledge of God. They're blind. Their, their, their understanding is darkened. The understanding there is not their understanding in terms of being intelligent, their understanding in terms of spiritual issues. They don't see the truth. And then not only that, but they are past feeling they've given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. The natural thing in the world is to be unclean and lewd. 
And it's talking, I think, a lot about sexual immorality, but it goes along with any kind of sin. It's natural. It's gotten to the point almost where I'm about ready to give up most television. I'm about ready to give it up. Star Trek's the only good show left, just about. <laughs> but I look at some of the modern shows that are coming out and, and things like that, and I just, I just shake my head and say, what, hap what happened? Well, it's verse 19 being worked out in society. He says, listen, this is the way the Gentiles walk, but listen, you have not so learned Christ. This is not the way Christ taught you to walk in uncleanness and lewdness and spiritual darkness. If indeed you have been heard, heard him and been taught by him as the, truth in Jesus, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which, create, which created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the old man, new man. Alright? You put off the old and put on the new. And Paul uses the metaphor here of like clothing. And really the point he's trying to make here is say you are a believer, now live like it. Don't live like the Gentiles. They walk in the vanity of their minds. Their understanding is darkened. Don't be like them. You've not learned Christ. What are you to do? You're to grow, walk in light. You put off your former conduct. And this is the whole idea of the mortification of the flesh and the putting off of the old. And you see this constant theme, not only here in Ephesians, but in Romans, in Colossians. Because I'm a new creation of Christ, I'm not to live like I'm not. And if you have somebody today that says it doesn't matter how you live, they're not preaching the true gospel. They're not preaching proper conduct. It's not legalism. You're Christ. You, you're Christ. You belong to Him. Live like it. Because what's it say the new man was done? It was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. God created you to do good deeds and to walk in holiness. That's, that's why God created you. And, and the sense here of creation is the salvation. You were saved to be holy, not to be sinful and to walk in sin. And then in verses 25 through 32, he gives you examples of what does it mean to put off the old and on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here's some examples. Put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. What's the old people, old man do? Lies, constant. What's the new man to do? And that's not with your fingers crossed. As a believer, let me tell you this. As a believer, you should be a person of impeccable character when it comes to your promises and your word. Your word should be your bond. When you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. You don't mean yo. 
When you make a commitment, you follow through on that commitment. I've had, as being on the deacon board of the church, I've had five or six deacons step down from the board because they no longer felt God wanted them there, but they made a commitment to be there for three years. The point is, if you make a commitment, what does the Bible say if you make a vow? What are you to do? You're to pay it. God doesn't say, you make a vow and God comes along and says, oh, well, you know, you didn't have to do that. I really don't want you to do that vow. He says, you make a vow, you pay the vow. If you make a commitment, you follow through. If you tell somebody you're going to be on a board for three years, you better stay there for three years. Unless it's something totally beyond your control that would force you off. But what happens is we get tired and we don't feel like being on it anymore, so we step down. Yeah, or it's not what we thought it would be. I had one guy leave because he thought he'd have more power and prestige than he did. He didn't like that, so he left the deacon board. Well, you know, good riddance. The leadership board. The problem is, if you make a commitment, and I think this is also financial, if you borrow money and tell somebody you're going to pay it back, what should you do? Don't say, God led me to declare bankruptcy. Or God said, I really didn't have to pay you back. No, that's, that's baloney. You be a person of your word. Why? The old man lies. The new man, created in righteousness, true holiness, does not lie. So what you better do is when you make a commitment, you better count the cost first before you say you'll do something. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.